Amen. As the Apostle Paul wrote to God's people in Thessalonica, he said to them in 1 Thessalonians 4 in the verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. This is God's will for every single believer. Sanctification or holiness. Indeed, as you read through the word of God, it is made abundantly clear. God's will and purpose for all of his people is that they would be holy and reflect something of God's own glorious holiness. This is God's will for every single Christian, for every single believer, that we would grow in holiness and grow to be more like our Savior. We can say holiness is God's sovereign purpose for his people. It is his sovereign purpose. Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us, according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God has chosen a people in Christ even before the foundation of the world. And the reason why he has done so, the reason why he has chosen a people, is that they might be holy. That's why God has elected a people, that that people might be holy. In Ephesians 2 and the verse 10, it is put this way, for we are his workmanship, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. And so God's sovereign purpose for his people, even before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, was that we would be a holy people. We can also say that holiness is not only God's sovereign purpose for his people, but it's also God's great saving purpose for his people. Titus 2 verses 13 and 14 speaks of how our Savior Jesus Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. This is why Christ gave himself for us. Why he came into this world and lived and died for his people. It was to save them from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. A people that would be zealous, fervent of good works. Christ did not suffer and die just to bestow upon his people eternal life. And of course, that was some of the reason why he died. To give to his people eternal life. But it wasn't just for that reason. He suffered and died to bestow upon his people eternal loveliness. Not just eternal life, but eternal loveliness. His saving work was not just to give us a place in heaven, but it was to prepare us for heaven. That land of holiness and purity where there is no sin. All that the Lord Jesus did as he came into this world and paid the price of sin was not just to make us happy, but it was to make us holy. That's why Christ shed his blood while he died. Galatians 1 and 4 says of Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. And so holiness is God's sovereign purpose for his people, and it's also God's saving purpose for his people. Then we can also say as we turn to God's word, holiness is God's splendid purpose for his people. This is God's great ultimate and glorious goal for all his own dear children. Listen to the words of Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy 
and without blemish. This is God's splendid will and purpose for all his people. That they should be holy and without blemish. That in the end, in eternity, he would present himself a church without spot or without wrinkle. What a day, glorious day that will be when all of the corruption and defilement of this wicked world is banished from our bodies and souls. And we will stand before Christ clothed in his righteousness and conforming to his likeness. And that's going to happen because this is God's purpose, ultimate purpose for his people to make them holy and to present them to himself a body of people without spot or wrinkle. Holiness then is God's great purpose for his people. And this is something each one who claims Christ as their saviour should be ever conscious of. God's will for my life, God's will for me, is that I should be holy and that I should endeavour to live a life which is righteous and honouring to the Lord. This is how we ought to think. This is how we need to live. Now this is the very subject that Peter brings before God's people in the second half of 1 Peter chapter 1. In these verses, Peter was reminding the Christians he wrote to that they as Christ's people have a responsibility, they have a duty to be holy and to walk in holiness. In verse 13, Peter first of all points to uh, the importance of holy thinking. See what it says in verse 13 here in 1 Peter 1. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice here Peter's focusing upon the mind here. Gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. And this is the thought here of, of thinking in the right way, thinking in a holy way. Right thinking, holy thinking, is the vital aspect in regard to holiness, in regard to our sanctification. If we aren't thinking in the right way, then we cannot live in the right way. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as he thinketh, that is as man thinketh, in his heart, so is he. In other words, our thoughts direct our actions. Our thoughts direct our actions. As Peter then speaks to Christ's people about holiness, he begins with the mind, with right thinking. For without holy thinking, there simply cannot be holy living. However, today, as we turn to this passage I want us to look at verses 14 to 16. And I want us to consider the subject, holy living. Holy living in the Christian life. See again the words of verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, not fashion yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Notice here Peter moves from holy thinking to holy living. We can say he moves from the head to the hand, from knowing righteousness to doing righteousness. And this is what is in view in verses 14 to 16. And then considering these words today, there are a number of things I want us to note together about holy living. The first thing I want us to consider here is holy living involves submission to the word. Holy living involves submission to the word. Notice the first three words in verse 14. As obedient children. As obedient children. As Peter now speaks about practical holy living, he commences by reminding God's people of the importance of obedience. The importance of submission. 
The word obedient here literally means to submit. This is the duty and responsibility for the Christian. This is what we must do if we are to grow and develop in holiness. We must be obedient children, submitting, submitting to the Lord. Now, as Peter speaks here of the need for obedience or submission, there are two things we should note. Firstly, we need to consider the standard the Christian submits to. The standard the Christian submits to. This, of course, is very important. We are to be obedient children, but who are we to be obedient to? Who are we to submit to? What standard are we to conform to? And this is really a very important question. Well, James 1.22 gives us the answer. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. The Christian is to be a doer of the word. They are to submit to God as he speaks in the scriptures. This is the standard the child of God is to submit to God's word. You see, a holy life is one that conforms not to the standards or traditions which men have developed or set up. It doesn't conform to this world, the standards of men in this world, but a holy life is one that conforms to God's standard. It submits to God's precepts, to his voice as it is heard in the scriptures. This is the nature of a holy life. It is one that is living in submission to the word of God and in obedience to his speaking voice. This is something we need to always keep in focus because it is very easy to set up our own standards in regard to holiness. And then as we keep our own wee rules, we think we are a holy people. And that's what so often happens. We see it in society at large. Today, people think, well, you know, if they drive an electric car, they're being moral. It's all nonsense. They've developed their own little rules. Or if, or if they protect the environment in some way, and I'm not saying you should do anything to destroy the environment, but people think if they do these things, if they keep their own little rules, then they're good people. They're morally good people. And let me tell you this, that's nothing new. This was the way it was years ago, even in Christ's day. It was this very thing that the Jews engaged in, and Christ condemned them for behaving in this way. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7 just for a moment. Mark chapter 7. Notice what it says here in verses 6 to 8. Christ here was speaking to the Jews, particularly the Pharisees and the scribes. Notice what he says here in Mark 7 on the verse 6. Mark 7, verse 6, He answered and said unto them, Well hath Elias prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. See what these people were doing. They were teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And they were holding the traditions of men. In other words, these people had made up their own rules about holiness. And the Savior refers to some of these here, washing of pots and cups. And they thought by washing their pots and washing their cups, and by these washings that they engaged in, that they were a holy people. They were a pure people. But notice the result of this developing or setting up of their own rules about holiness. See what it says in verse 13 in Mark 7. 
making the word of God of none effect, through your own traditions, which ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. Making the word of God of none effect through your traditions. These people, by introducing their own commandments, and saying, those that follow these rules are holy, had set aside God's standard. That's what they had done. They had introduced their own rules, their own commandments, their own traditions. And they were saying, listen, if anybody follows these rules, then they're holy and they're good and they're moral and they're acceptable people. But in doing all of these things, they had ignored the word of God. They had elevated their own ideas and opinions so high meant they had rejected God's word. That's what the Jews did. And this is still a danger we can fall into today. This is where we need to be so careful when it comes to holy living. You see, even within the church, and let me say this, every church, every denomination and group of believers have certain distinctives and traditions that are peculiar to them. Idiosyncrasies and practices. This is true of every single denomination. Every denomination, this will be found in. Certain distinctives, certain traditions. But the danger is, when our distinctives become the rule by which we measure what is holy and what is not. And that can be a danger. That can be a danger. Following our own rules, our own traditions. And we think if we do certain things, then we are a holy people. And this is exactly what the Pharisees did. This is the trap they fell into. The standard of holiness is not the distinctives of a church, but it is the doctrines of Christ. And we need to always remember this. The standard of holiness, the standard by which we must live, is not the the distinctives of a church, but it is the doctrines of Christ. Of course, this is what keeps us humble and seeking Christ for his grace and power in our lives. This is really what keeps us looking to the Lord for his help. You see, when we set up our own rules and we follow our own ideology, that's not overly hard, really. To follow the rules of men is not a great difficulty. But the Jews, it was merely washing pots and cups. And that's not overly hard. But yet when we seek to follow that which Christ says and live by the word of God, that's exceedingly difficult. And as we do that, We soon realize we need the help of another. We need the help of God's spirit in our lives. And that's what moves us to look to God. When we seek to conform to his standard, we feel our own weakness. We feel our own great need of God and the help of his spirit. So therefore we look to him, we cry to him. This is why it is so important that we ever seek to submit to the word in our lives. Because in doing so, It will keep us in a right relationship with the Lord. We will need his help day by day and moment by moment. And so we have here the standard the Christian submits to. But notice also, I want to consider with you the spirit the Christian submits in. The spirit the Christian submits in. Notice Peter does not say in verse 14, as obedient people or as obedient Christians. We might have expected that. He was speaking to believers here. But he doesn't say this. Instead he says, as obedient children. As obedient children. In other words, he was telling these believers they were to submit to God's word in the way that an obedient child would submit to their parents. The obedient child wholeheartedly 
and happily submits to their children. And it is their desire to please them. Now I know I've got children myself. The children sometimes are disobedient. But we're thinking here about an obedient child. An obedient child happily submits to their parents. And they want to please their parents. And this is the way we are to submit to God's word. We are to do so wholeheartedly and joyfully. Like obedient children, it should be our delight to obey our Heavenly Father. This should be our greatest delight and joy. To live by the word of God and to obey our Heavenly Father. Christ said in John 14 verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. See the relationship between obedience and love there. The Apostle John declared in 1 John 5, 2 and 3, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not grievous. Holy people don't obey God's word and submit to God's commandments begrudgingly or out of a sense of duty. It's not a chore to them. But like obedient children, this is what they love and this is what they long to do. This is what the holy person does. Submits to God's word with joy and gladness. Indeed, it is the prayer of the truly holy person. As it was David's prayer in Psalm 119 verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. And I shall keep it unto the end. See what David's praying there. Lord, teach me your ways. Show me your statutes. And I'll keep it right to the very end. Right to the very end. In other words, I'll keep it in full. In every detail, I'll follow it. In every detail, I'll walk in your statutes. That's exactly what he's saying there. He wanted to know the way of the Lord. That he might follow it wholly. One of the signs, one of the sure signs of a cold, backslidden heart. Is that God's commandments, his precepts, are not pleasing to us. We see them as troublesome. And a bit of a hindrance to our enjoyment. And that's a sure sign of a cold heart, of a backslidden heart. That which God asks us to do, his commandments, his statutes, we find them narrow and impeding. Take, for example, the fourth commandment. The person who is walking in holiness will delight to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It will be their joy to worship to come to God's house, not only in the morning meeting, but in the evening meeting, to join with God's people and to worship the Lord. It will be their joy and their thrill. And they will look at other people who are not doing it. And in a way, those poor people, they know not the Lord. And they're enslaved to their pleasures and they're enslaved to this world and they're, they're out there on Sunday and they're wasting their life and there'll almost be a sense of feeling sorry for such people. That's why the holy person looks upon the Sabbath day as a delight a joy to gather with God's people in worship. The unsaved person of the wayward in heart will think of all the other things they could be doing on the Sabbath day. They will think, well, you know what? I, I can't do this. I can't do that. And, oh, maybe that's the case with you, young person, today. You think about the Sabbath day and even maybe your parents and, and the rules they make and the things you can and cannot do, it's, it just impedes your enjoyment. What that's teaching is you're not a holy person. And you need Christ. You need to be saved. The holy person 
is the person who submits to God's word and submits to God's word with a willing and a joyful spirit. They're obedient children. And so holy living involves submission to the word. That's the first thing here. But then notice with me, secondly, holy living involves separation from the world. Separation from the world. And see again the words of verse 14. As obedient children, not fashion yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. These words very clearly bring before us the truth that separation from this sinful world is a vital part of holy living or holy life. Not fashion yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. Paul uses almost similar language as he speaks to God's people in Romans 12 in the verse 2. Be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The holy person is one who does not conform to the wicked ways of this sinful world. There is a separation in their life. A separation from carnal and worldly behavior. There is this separation. Now we should note that everything worldly is not wicked. That's important to note that. Everything worldly is not wicked. This is a mistake that some have made in the past. And so they adopt a life of isolation. Some have lived in monasteries. And they've went to live in these places of of isolation and monasteries. Think of Martin Luther before he came to faith in Christ. He lived in a monastery. He felt that if he isolated himself from the world and from all that was happening around him, he could be a holy man. And this is how he endeavored to be holy. By living in a monastery. Others like the Amish and the Mennonite people have refused to accept anything that they perceive to be modern. And so they don't drive cars or use electricity. And they think that in this way they can avoid worldliness. Anything that is modern. And they they don't take part in these things. Yet it is a great mistake to think that everything worldly is wicked. Grave mistake. Psalm 33 verse 5 tells us the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. And Psalm 115 verse 16 we read the heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's but the earth hath he given to the children of men. The earth has he given to the children of men. And so God has not only filled this world with his goodness but he's given this world to us to be enjoyed. God in his grace and mercy has given to us many blessed things in this world to be enjoyed. Therefore, separation from this world does not mean we refuse to use and enjoy those things God has given to us. Instead, separation from this world means we are to separate from the wicked and sinful character and conduct of this world. And that's the thought. We are to separate from the wicked and sinful character and conduct of this world. Now think of the words of verse 14. We see that separation, or in these words in verse 14, we see it. this separation from the world really involves two things. It involves two things. Holy separation from the world involves not following the pattern of this world. Not following the pattern of this world. It speaks here of how we are not to fashion ourselves after the world. The word fashioning literally means to conform to the same pattern. To conform to the same pattern. And so the Christian is not to conform to the same pattern that prevails in this world. This is what we're not to do. In Ephesians 2, in the verse 2, Paul told God's people, before they were saved, they walked according to the course of this world. 
according to the course of this world. And so this is what we're not to do. We're not to walk according to the course of this world. We're not to follow the pattern of this world. But the Christian is to live a life that is different. We're not to conform to the same pattern as this world. We're to be different. The obvious question then is, what is the course of this world? What really is worldliness? We're not to follow this pattern, but what is worldliness? What is this course? Well, worldliness is to live for and love the things of time and put these things, temporal things, above God. That's what really worldliness is. To love the things of this world and to put these things before God. To make the world and the things of this world our God. That's what worldliness is. To make this world and the things of this world our God. For example, the rich foolish farmer was a worldly man. This is what he lived for. His farm, his wealth, his prosperity. He wasn't a, a criminal. He wasn't a wicked man in that sense. He may have been a very moral man, a very respectable man. But the Bible calls him a fool. Why? Because he was a worldly man. He just lived for the things of this world. Also in Luke 17, we read of the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And it says of those days, they did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. Now, these things are not evil in themselves. To eat and to drink is not evil. To get married is not evil. To buy and sell, to plant and build. In fact, these are all good things. These are things that hard-working and, and people who want to live a, a decent life are, are involved in. These are good and commendable things. And yet the days of Noah and the days of Lot were notably wicked days. And yet these were the things they were doing. But the point is this. Their lives were just taken up with these things. These earthly and temporal things. And God was not in all their thoughts. This is the unholy fashion of this world. This is the course of this world. Living merely for the things of time. And no thought of God. The holy person, however, separates from this worldly pattern. They separate from this worldly pattern. They're not carnal in their outlook. They're not taken up and consumed with the things around them. Their big concern in life is not their pleasure or their possessions or their prosperity, but their big concern in life is their purity. It is honoring God. It is living for God. It is living for His glory. This is what the holy person does. This is the pattern they follow. Not the course of this world. Living for God and honoring Him. Holy separation from this world then involves not following the pattern of this world. But then we also see here holy separation from the world involves not following the passions of this world. Notice in verse 14 it speaks of former lusts. Former lusts. This word lust means unholy desire. Unholy desire. Now this world is filled with people who are lustful. People who are actually ruled by unholy desires. The desire for sinful and holy things burns within the hearts of men and women. It burns within their hearts. And we see this almost everywhere. 
sensual behavior, wicked behavior, or moral behavior? Where does it come from? Lusts, sinful lusts and sinful desires. 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is filled with unholy desires and passions. But the holy person, the child of God, is not to follow the passions of this world. They are not to be overcome or ruled by unholy desires. Instead, Colossians 3 and 2 instructs the believer, set your affections on things above and not on the things of the earth. Set your affections on the things above and not on the things of the earth. In other words, we are to be passionate about Christ and passionate about his kingdom. We are to be filled with a desire to honor the Savior and to see his kingdom extended and sinners submitting to his authority. This is what should fire our souls. This is the passion we ought to have as God's people. Indeed, this will be the desire of the holy person to see unholy sinners made holy and honoring the Savior. Glorifying him. God's work extending. God's work going forward. This ought to be the holy passion that burns within our hearts. The holy person will not be, or will not be, not only be separated from the pattern of this world, the passions of this world, but they will fashion their lives upon Christ and will serve Him fervently. This is the holy person. They will fashion their lives upon Christ. His life will be the pattern they want to follow, and will be their their burning desire and their holy passion. To honor him and to see his kingdom extended. And so holy living involves separation from the world as well as submission to the word. The final thing I want to note today very quickly is that holy living involves sanctification in our walk. Sanctification in our walk. And see now the words of verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 1. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy. For I am holy. These words are emphatically clear. The Christian is called with a holy calling. The Christian is commanded to be holy in conduct. Just as we consider these verses in closing, I want us to think of those words at the end of verse 15. So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. So be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The believer The child of God is to be holy in all manner of conversation. And the word conversation as it is used here means behavior. In every area of life, in all our conduct, in every relationship that we are involved in, we are to walk in holiness. The Christian is to be a holy husband or wife. If you're married, your spouse should be able to say, I'm married to a holy man or a holy woman. This is what we are to be. And this is what Peter was saying to God's people here. Remember, Peter's writing to Christians here. Believers like you and I. And this is what we are to be. In your relationship with your wife, man, they ought to recognize you're a holy man and how you treat her and how you love her and how you care for her. Ladies, and how you submit to your husband, he should be able to say, I'm married to a holy woman. And how you respect him and honor him. We're to be holy parents. 
holy parents. Our children should recognize this about us. My mom and dad are holy people. And yes, they might resist and they might withstand your rules or or how you do things, but they will know that you're a holy person because you have certain standards and you live in a certain way. Your children ought to know this. They ought to recognize this. Christian children are to be holy children. That also applies. They're to be holy children. Young people are to be holy young people in all their conduct. Again, those in our community should be able to say of us, that person just doesn't go to such and such a church. But they live a life which is different. A life that's peculiar. Oh yes, the world mightn't recognize it as holy. But they will recognize it as different. Unique. Peculiar. And we are to be a peculiar people in this world. Set apart. We are to be the light of this world. And the salt of the earth, Christ says. And that is saying that people should recognize the contrast in how we live. Even in our communities and neighborhood. This also, of course, extends to the workplace as well. As Christ's people, we are to be holy employees. And holy employers. The people that we work with should recognize us as holy people. People that are different. I remember hearing of a man once. And this man professed to be saved. He actually holds office in the church. And he was working in a building site. And another young believer was working alongside him. And this older man who professed Christ was using language that was not becoming of a Christian in any shape or form. And the younger believer said to him, well, listen, you know, why are you speaking in this way? Why are you using this language? And he says, well, you know, it's just the language of the building site. It's the language of the building site. Don't worry about it. It's just the language of the building site. Nonsense. It's the language of the world. It's wickedness. And if the building site is wicked or your workplace is wicked, that's all the more reason to be a holy person. To be different. And so that people will see the difference. And how we live and how we behave. Holy in all manner of conversation means in every walk of life we are to live for God's glory and do that which is pleasing in his sight. In every part of life. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. This is the life we've been called to. Not only holy in submitting to God's word and holy in separating from the world, but sanctified also in our walk in every part of life, living for the glory of our God. May God, by his spirit, help us to be a holy people, to submit to his word, to separate from this world and to be sanctified in every, every part of life. Our God is holy. He is the thrice holy one. Let us therefore as his people strive after holiness. I trust God will bless his truth to our hearts for his own name's sake. Amen. Amen. In closing, let us turn to hymn number 411. Hymn number 411. I want, dear Lord, a heart that's true and clean. A sunlit heart with not a cloud between, a heart like thine, a heart divine, a heart as white as snow. On me, dear Lord, a heart like this.
bestow. It really is a prayer. Make this the prayer of our hearts today as we worship the Lord in the song.